some very similar thoughts uh, to what's already been expressed uh, during uh, worship time in music this morning. So here's what I want you to do. I think the kids have exited by now and you've already got your Bible open to where we're going to be. Uh, close your eyes for just a second. You say, that's what we do at the end of the service. I'm going to invite you to do that right now. Close your eyes. Here's why. I'm, I'm getting ready to tell you a major piece of information, and here it is. The Word of God, the written Word of God, is spiritual, and we are carnal, which means we're earthbound. We're going to hear about that today. So as you have your eyes closed, the only way you're going to get anything out of this is if there's nothing clouding your view toward it and if God speaks to you. So as has already been challenged, I want to invite you right now, is there any sin blocking you from hearing what God has for you today? Right here in the midst of the auditorium, some need to hear what God wants to do for them today, but they need to hear the message first, and others need to be reminded what God has already done for them. But I'm telling you, you're going to miss it if you have sin blocking your view and your hearing and clogged up hearing, or as we mentioned last week, if you have a divided heart that's been split and distracted on something else, uh, then you're going to just go through a motion today and you're going to wonder what time it's over. So I'm going to invite you right now, talk to the Lord and say, Lord, show me if there's anything between me and you, then confess it to him and invite him to talk to you in a special way. I've already been praying for you to that end. Anything between you and the Lord, confess it to him. And then after that, ask the Lord to speak to you exactly what he wants you to hear today. All right, let's begin. You may look this way. I think it was around six weeks ago that I stood up here at this point in the service. And I started talking how we're getting ready to enter uh, a series of sermons that would not be called feel-good messages. You remember that? And six weeks ago, from then till now, there are many of you have literally been here every single service since, and others of you have been here every single time it was physically possible for you to be here. So to that group, I want to say thank you uh, for sticking it out, staying the course, being willing to hear the ugly truth, because really we've gone through some truth, but it's been some ugly truth. Uh, You may have walked out of here many times feeling a little bit beat up. Uh, I want to encourage you with this thought. Uh, Today is kind of the last of these not-so-feel-good messages in this particular series. Here's all I want you to know by way of introduction. Paul's goal was not to be mean. My goal in this, is I promise you, is not to be mean and tough, sound tough on things. Uh, We could have skipped this section and just jumped right to the end of chapter 3. We could have skipped the whole book of Romans, uh, but the Lord didn't lead that way. Honestly, I'm not saying... There are some preachers that do what I'm about to say, and there's many, many more in our county that don't do what I'm about to say. Uh, They handle the word properly and they're spirit-led. But I'll be honest with you, we could get up here every week and tell you guys nice lies. Good. You'd walk out just, man, I'm going back next week for more nice lies. In, In fact, let's be honest, we could also spend a lot of time in the sections of Scripture that affect certain types of people, and those are also truthful and feel-good sections, but I'm going to tell you, if we neglect this part of Scripture, not only am I doing the wrong thing, 
Catch what I'm about to say. I would be most cruel if I did. You say, Jeff, you've kind of been cruel to us the last six weeks. I'm telling you, I would be most cruel if we just skipped it. I would be worse, not like, I'm, I promise you, I would be worse than a doctor who knows you have cancer in time to do something about it, but he doesn't tell you because he doesn't want that awkward conversation in his office and he doesn't want to see your feelings get upset. So he knows in time to tell you you could do something about it, but he withholds it and then you can't do anything about it. You see where I'm coming from? So this isn't fun for me and I don't delight. Like, Lord, where can I preach today that's just going to blister them? I I promise you that's not the goal. Here's the other thing. We're going to read the text in just a moment. If there wasn't hope, if there's no hope, all truth, but no hope, I wouldn't preach this to you. But I'll promise you there is hope in spite of the truth we're going to look at. There is hope. This is a hope-filled message, particularly because where it ends. And next week, we really start getting to look at where our hope lies. If you've been with us, you know that for two and a half chapters in the book of Romans, we've been in a courtroom tone in the book. And what's been happening? Paul has been a prosecuting attorney. And he's been bringing the evidence. Boy, he's been bringing the evidence against his own race, all of mankind. I think that's your first note. Paul is the prosecuting attorney, man. He's bringing the evidence. Who's, who's he bringing the, 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 the evidence against? The immoral pagans that want nothing to do with God. Absolutely, look at what they're guilty of. They're going to get what they deserve. But then he brought in the kind of, well, we're not as bad as them. He brought in another group of Gentiles. It's like, we're kind of more moral. Yeah, well, this is the evidence against you. Well, what about us that are kind of moral and religious? Well, here's the evidence against you. And as we've done the last couple of weeks, Paul even brought in the Jew and said, here's the evidence against you. And it's not pretty. So with that in mind, would you look with me? We're going to read... Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20 this morning. Verses 9 to 20, and it goes like this. Having concluded this Jewish section the last couple of weeks, last couple of Sundays, Paul asks the question, what then? What's the conclusion then? As he's concluding literally a whole section of Romans, he asks, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, Paul's saying, if you've paid attention to what's been written, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, you know what he's saying there? You can put all people into two categories. You're right, men and women, true, males, females. You can put all people into two groups, right? The saved, who have Jesus as their Savior, and the unsaved, true. And biblically, you can put all of mankind into two groups. You have the Jews and all the ones who are not Jews, Gentiles, here represented by the word Greeks. Paul says, we've charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And here it comes. Boy, if we thought we had it rough before, it's really coming this morning. Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together... They have become, they weren't created that way, they have become worthless. Who's he talking about? Us. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, Paul gets back from, stops quoting scripture and gets back to his inspired message in Romans. He says, now we know that whatsoever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The King James says, guilty before God. For by works of the law, keeping God's rules, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 9. We'll use verse 9 as an introductory verse and then we'll get to the kind of the points this morning, verses 10 through 20. Look at verse 9. Paul asks, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Those of you that were here last week, he had a different question for us. Now, without looking back, here's the question. Ready? Did the Jews have advantages? Yes or no? Yes. So like it or not, some people have advantages. I want to remind you again. I think I'll probably do a blog, Lord willing, this week because I'm not very good at doing those and I'm supposed to do those and they're supposed to be on the website. So I think I'm going to do one on advantages. Now here's the fact. Please, I believe this and you should too. The best advantages in life, the greatest advantages are not financial, though that is a great advantage. The greatest advantages in life are not intellectual. You may think, but that's just not fair. They're so creative or they're so inventive or they're sitting on the $5 million idea and they just have an advantage or they're so winsome or they have these skills and these abilities. They're so administrative or they're authoritative or I mean, whatever it may be. They, they, just, they have a skill that our society values and it pays a lot more and that's a huge advantage. I agree it is. But the greatest advantages are not intellectual, they're not financial, the greatest advantages are not physical. And I realize some can throw a ball better than others, kick it, some can run faster, jump higher, lift more, much stronger, some look better than others, and man, they milk that for everything it's worth, and they just just got advantage. They won the genetic lottery, right? This is not fair. Hear what I'm about to say, the greatest advantages in life are not financial, intellectual, or physical. The greatest advantages in life are spiritual, and that's what the Jews had. You say, what was it? As we said last week, they had access to the Word of God. So I'm going to tell you again, anyone who has at anyone, anyone who has access to the Word of God is most blessed. So do we have... You know, he asks this question, verse, one, verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? Now, that's a whole different question. Paul says, no, you're not better off just because you have access to the Word of God. Just knowing the Bible and having a copy or five or ten laying around the house, that doesn't make you any better than anyone else. Here's why. He says, because we've already charged, we've already concluded, all are under sin. Now, watch this word. Several times today we're going to have to explain a few words. Here's one. All under sin does not mean sin is like that roof that's up there. What about 13 feet, 14 feet up there? Uh, Don't think of sin as these three letters, S-I-N, in black letters, and all mankind is under that. That's not what it means. 
To be under sin, Paul is not saying, this is stronger than this, he's not saying all people have sinned. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying all people are sinners. No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying they're all under sin. Like a soldier is under the authority of his commanding officer. He has to do whatever the officer says. He's under his authority. Paul says, you know what? It's not just all have sinned, all are sinners. He's saying all of us are under the authority of sin. And when sin calls, we're under its authority. We just obey. It's a bad place to be. You say, how many people are under this authority Paul's going to give the answer and in fact God will give his answer but here before we look at the first point I need to make something very very clear this is important what Paul is going to put together the words of God and what he's describing particularly this is important in verses 10 through 18 if you don't catch this you're going to think nope that doesn't apply what he's talking about is mankind as we come into this world apart from God So if God were to just leave mankind alone, apart from us, what we're about to read perfectly describes every single one of us. This is not describing the person who has a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ who's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not not what we're about to read. But this is all of us originally as we come into this world. So here's Paul, the prosecuting attorney. He's made his case for two and a half chapters. And basically it's like, uh, Your Honor, prosecution rests. So where does that leave us? Today's passage, three things. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the first point today, because it has three subpoints, is going to be literally twice as long as the second and third point combined. We're going to spend a lot of time in the first point. Here it comes. The judge's verdict. Paul says, hey, prosecution rests, and now we await for the judge's verdict. And God is the judge, and so Paul doesn't have to wait. Hey, God, what's your conclusion? Paul just goes back and he reads the Old Testament where God has already spoken and he strings these quotes together. It's not like exhausting one passage. Paul takes a quote here, a truth here, out of Psalms, out of Psalms, out of Psalms, another out of Psalms, a couple, two or three out of the book of Isaiah and he strings them together and voila, we have verses 10 through 18. You say, what's God's verdict? I'm going to give you the main verdict and we'll break it down into three parts. You ready? Here's the verdict. God says mankind is universally wicked. Mankind is universally, and that word universally is important. You say, where do you get the word universally? Did you catch these 11 times these words were used? As I read a while ago, 11 times you heard a combination of these words. All, none. These are universal words. Right, like most. No, no, no. All, none, no one. Not even one. Every whole world. That's what we just read. Catch this. Paul is not saying that mankind is universally unclean. We are unclean. But this is much stronger than that. He's saying we are, guys, all people who've ever lived are universally not just unclean. We are wicked. We are evil. You're like, that's not me. And you better not say that about my mama. My mama's not wicked and evil. Okay. I am not, I'm not talking about your mother. God is. And he's the judge. And I'm just telling you what Paul, you see I'm passing the buck, right? I'm just telling you what Paul said, which is what God said, and God is the judge. And he says, mankind is you. Hey, listen, who's the best person that if you were to say, I'm going to nominate them to represent the human race. They're the best I know. I'm going to tell you, the best person you know is wicked, evil left to themselves apart from God. 
I look at the Old Testament. If we were to do a list of the best, I promise you, if you did a, a list and put three names, just three names, David's name would be on. Have you ever read David? Man, this guy, the heart like God. Here's a man after God's own heart. Slept with another man's wife knowing what he was doing. Here he's married, spots another woman, knows that she's married, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant and when he can't cover up the pregnancy, he has the guy killed. He has him murdered. The best of the Old Testament, an adulterer and a murderer. That's the best. You say, well, surely the New Testament, when you get the Holy Spirit, okay, I dare you. Come up with a list of the best in the New Testament and you put three names on there. The writer of this book would be on the list. And when we get to chapter number 7, you're going to see him bear his heart and we're going to take a peek at the diary of Paul and it isn't pretty. Oh, it's not pretty. And if you think, well, boy, I'm just glad our preacher's a good guy. I don't want you to know all my dirt and I don't want to know all of yours because it isn't pretty, I promise you. The best mankind has to offer I said there would be three things. Anyone, if you were to sit down and read this ten times, you would realize, well, okay, that's kind of a section within the section. Well, there's, that's kind of another little section. Ooh, here he's talking about something else. And so let's look at these passages, these eight or nine verses this morning, maybe ten, and break them down into three sections. And really there end up being 14 indictments against man that God says guilty, 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 guilty all down the line. The first section is this, verses 10 through 12. Man's character is condemned. Let's just talk about our character, mankind's character. What are we like? Verse number 10 says there's none. None is righteous. No, not one. None is righteous. Here's what God says. There's not even one of us who comes into this world in a right relation. We are not born in a right relationship with God. You say, what does that mean? Well, we come into this world already on the outs. You on that? You came into this. You say, right, I sinned. I probably started sinning somewhere in the nursery age when, no, no, no. You came into this world already on the outs with God. And I realize what we do. We like to say, well, this doesn't seem to apply because I know some people who appear to be righteous. Right, because you're doing it the wrong way. You're taking this person who appears to be righteous and you're comparing them with other people horizontally and they look righteous. But here's the problem. God is saying, compared to him vertically, none are perfect. No one's perfect. John MacArthur in his commentary uses the analogy, here's the task. A group of people on a South Pacific island and their job is jump to the United States. You have to jump from here, you have to land in the United States. That's your task. You want to go to heaven? You got to jump from here, you got to land in the United States. Now your choice would be, probably the better would be jump to California. It's only a few thousand miles. Or if you want to go over Africa and land in Florida, I guess you can go that way. Now, have you ever like, watched the Olympics and the long jump and the triple jump? You know, there are some elite athletes. If you give them enough tarmac and a good sand pit, they can jump 25 feet. Others, good athletes, not the elite, good ones can jump 15 feet. Most people, if given enough run in their youth, can jump 10 feet. And most of you, you may not believe it, I actually did it in my office a while ago just to make sure, we can pretty much jump 5 feet. You say, well, dude, there's like a big difference between 25 feet and 5 feet. That's five times farther, right? But watch the analogy. South Pacific Islands, United States, you're up here from a vantage point, and one, two, three, and they run and they jump, and they're like, okay, go ahead and do it. Just did. How'd I do? 
No, 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 jump. I'm, no. They landed in their calves, water up to their calves. Some went five, some went two. Ooh, one dude, Carl Lewis, look, he went 28 feet. Woohoo! It's a joke. You're so far from making the perfection that God requires. Verse 11 adds a couple of more things. It doesn't get any better. Not only is there none righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Why? Mankind's spiritually ignorant. We are spiritually ignorant. Now, we may know some things about a few things, but we don't know everything about anything, and we know nothing about God unless he shows it to us. I'll say that again. We may know a few things about some things, but we don't know everything about anything, and we know nothing about God except what he, on purpose, shows us through various ways of revealing to us. Why? Because God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. You can't know him. He's invisible. We know the Bible says God is beautiful, but no person here on earth knows about the beauty of God. No person here knows about the knowledge. Yeah, he knows a lot. No, we don't know how much he knows. No one, no one understands the, the perfect holiness of God. Right, he doesn't like sin. No, we don't understand the perfect holiness of God. Right, God is love. We don't know how much God loves or how merciful God really, really is. We say God's large. I feel silly using that. How big is God? Oh, he's large. And we know more now than when they wrote the Bible because, wow, look, it's not just this galaxy. This is just one of the galaxies that's not even one of the bigger ones. It just goes and goes. And Wow, I look over here. I see Allie this morning. Her pastor could really blow our minds. Louis Giglio, that's your pastor, right? He could blow our minds with the size of God in comparison with the universe he created because he's much bigger than that. So we don't know. Yeah, God is large. No, he's incomprehensible. He's really strong. No, he's all-powerful. He's eternal, right? It goes on and on. Yeah, but what really blows our mind is looking back. We can never understand looking back at God's eternality. No one understands. And no one naturally, here's what the Bible says, here's what God says. No one seeks after God. No one naturally seeks after God. I'm going to tell you why. Ready? Because we're constantly looking for answers and fulfillment and pleasure, satisfaction, joy, in relationships for some it's this if I could just cut off that relationship I'll be happy or if I could have a relationship with that person I'll be happy or if I could have more relationships others it's like I don't care about relationships if I could just have the power others like if I could be famous or chasing money and power and fame and, and what money can buy and pleasure and some would be like I don't need to be famous just let me alone and let me feel good let me have all the food I want let me have good health and some good things that kind of tantalize my senses and I'll have joy and satisfaction and so we don't seek God now I realize as I'm saying that there's a problem because some of you are thinkers and you're saying okay Jeff I, I get it I agree with a lot of this but this one's not true because just look at all the religions around the world there's plenty of people seeking after God really I want you to take a moment literally and sit down and think just in quietness and think about the religions of man and here's what you'll find they're really actually ignorant selfish attempts to escape the true God in favor of a God that I invent that's what man's religion is 
So here's the conclusion of this point. No one is righteous. None understands spiritual things or God because he's invisible to us, incomprehensible. And no one seeks after God. In fact, no one ever has gone after God. No one ever will. You say, why is that? Because no one can. I think we have John 6, 44. Do we have that on the screen? Look at John 6, 44. Here's what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I understand we don't like what that says, but I I just have to preach what the Bible says. Here's what that means, guys. Listen, if someone here this morning is lost in their sins, it doesn't matter how hard I try to preach. It doesn't matter, you know, how much truth I give unless God comes to that person. That's true religion. When God comes to the person, if God doesn't do that, they can never come to God. They have no shot, no chance, and they will never go to him on their own. That's what the Bible teaches. Verse 12 gives us three more things. I'm really going to just touch on two quickly. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And he says no one does good. We'll talk about that at the end, not even one. They've all turned aside. Together they become worthless. Turned aside, there's a couple of meanings there. Watch, here's one. These words have word pictures, and they they were used in in ancient languages, and you'd see, what does this word actually mean? Oh, it's describing that. Here's one, and and a caravan, and it's going to cross a hot, dry desert, and it's kind of, here's the route that it's supposed to take. There's the route, and that's the destination, leaving here. It was supposed to go this way. Watch, but uh uh-oh, they turned aside. Big trouble. Uh Uh-oh. That's the worst, deepest part of the desert, they've got enough water to go from here to here. They have enough supplies, but uh-oh, they turned aside. It's not going to be, they're not going to reach the destination. You say, okay, wow, I get that. All mankind has turned aside. You know the other definition? It means to do on purpose what we know we're not supposed to do. It's the picture of a soldier who intentionally knows the battle is there, but he goes this direction. Mankind as a whole has, uh uh-oh, we've turned aside. And we've turned aside on purpose. So yeah, we've blown it and we've rebelled. And that's us. And the conclusion of this little section that God says, they've all together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Worthless, you have your notes there. You know what worthless means? Here's the picture. Milk that has soured. Now, what, I don't know what you guys do with it. What do you do with that last half of a quart, right, of milk in the bottom of the gallon? I mean, it's not just two days past the date. It's you've gone on vacation, come back, and it's, it's seven, eight days past, and you, whoa, right? You, you keep that in the crawl space, right? You got, like, all these jugs of almost empty milk, that you keep in there. And I come to your house, right? I'm like, dude, what? I don't want to be mean, but what is that smell? Oh, that's, that's our soured milk. What are you doing with that? We're just saving it. Why? You never know when you're going to need soured milk. Have you ever used your soured milk? Never once. That's mankind. We were wired, we were made to glorify God, but because of sin, all together. What if you put us all together, though, Lord? useless, worthless. It's the idea of meat and fruit that is spoiled and rotten. I mean, like meat that's rotten. It's got not just the flies, but listen. Oh, yeah, there's the maggots. What do you do with your meat that's maggot-ridden? 
What do you do with your pumpkin? You remember the pumpkin that you had out there in October? It was great. You carved in, you know, you got a jack-o'-lantern. You put the little light in. What do you do with him three weeks after Halloween when he's smushed in and there's this puddle of goo and there's these fruit flies? You're like, then I make a pumpkin pie. No, you don't either. Man, that's our character. But then that leads to verse 13. Not only is our character, but our very conversation is condemned. Look at verse 13. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I thought about this. I think there's a commercial. It's for cough medicine or something, I think. Have you ever thought about what if we could see our coughs? You know? We can kind of see our sneezes if there's kind of light over there and we're, somebody's over there and Oh, wow. Still. But if we could see our coughs, you know, we're kind of standing around, there's six or seven of us <coughs> billowing out. We would probably be like, hey, uh, yeah, dude, I, I, I got to go to lunch. Ooh, stay away from that guy. He's just kidding. Ugh, he's infecting everybody. You know what the Bible says? You know what it's saying here? We are infecting people constantly with our speech. I thought of a few ways. One, here's one. One is just maybe the lesser, but it's frankly repelling to others. You ever seen this? You ever seen it? You have. And as I say it, you'll think of someone. There's a group of people. They're maybe in a little semicircle or full circle. There's four or five of them. They're having a good old conversation. Everybody's involved. They all feel good. But here comes that person, right? Here they come. And they get up there, and within 60 seconds, they've turned the conversation to them, and now they're bragging, me and I, and I've done this, and I have this, and I know them, and I'm gonna, and all of a sudden, you just see the group that was there, five, six minutes, and all of a sudden, just, it disbands, why? Because they just infected the group. Or here's another one, same, here, the group's doing fine, here comes this person, and they just start whining, just whining, oh, whoa, me, me, and oh, I, and they wonder why, okay, it's like you just wanna say, have you ever noticed the group just goes away from you? You're infecting them. They don't want that. That's what we do. But I think it's worse when we not only repel, but we infect people with our gossip. You ever seen this? This is a big one. We hear, we jump, we go in, we look for the Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you about them. And all of a sudden, the group that was doing fine, because we've interjected our speech, they literally went from not thinking bad about a person to now they have question marks or you've convinced them. And maybe what you said was true, but it was none of their business. And probably the worst of all is when we come at the kids are really, really good at it. And you ladies. And the kids are really good at it. It's this. We use our words to cut and spew hatred, and it kills people's spirits. And it takes sometimes kids years to get over elementary school or junior high or high school because all the kids... And they literally take that. Now, some turn it into motivation, but, man, words were just killing their spirit. Yep, that's us. That's mankind. That's our speech. Did you catch the direction of Paul's four body parts? Did you catch it? Watch this. I want you to see where it's coming from. You'll see it. Where's it coming from? What direction is he going? Where is it? Let's trace it back. Here's where he starts. Their throat, their tongue, their lips, their mouth, watch it again, their throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. Where's it all coming from? Where's all this corrupt speech coming from? Tell me, 
the heart. Now granted, the mind, the heart, the core of the being, what Paul is saying, it starts here. And this is all corrupt and vile because the heart is first corrupt and unclean and vile. The speech is unclean because the heart's unclean. Hey, I've been on a lot of construction sites. I'm going to just tell you. I've not been on many lately, but my dad, my brother in construction, I did some construction in the summer times when I taught in school. And I'm going to just tell you, I've heard a lot of things that should never have been thought. But dude, if you thought it, you ought to be ashamed and embarrassed. But they had the gall and the lack of shame to actually say it. And what's worse, people laughed at it. And don't even let your mind go what I might be talking about. Just know Unfortunately, I thought of some things this week that still stuck there because somebody just spewed it all over the whole group. Vile. Verse 13, Paul says, our throats like an open grave. Open. Why do we seal graves? Well, you want to keep some things out and you want to keep some things in. We'll keep the, the animals out out of respect for the dead. Keep the animals out. But watch this. We also want to keep the stench in the ancient graves, that time period, you know, even if, whether they would embalm or not, but just keep the stench and also just the, the unsightly vision of what becomes of these bodies. The moment the Spirit leaves, what starts happening to these bodies, it isn't pretty, and so we seal the graves. Here's what Paul's saying. Our heart, our being, our thoughts, our, our, our emotions, our will, put it all together, is death... And when we talk, we're just taking the seal off the tomb and just letting all this corruption out. And I realize as I say that, verse 13 and 14 talks about this poison that's under and they're full of cursings and bitterness. And I, I realize, okay, I'm talking to very refined people today. And so you're thinking, Brother Jeff, honestly, that doesn't sound like people I know. Okay, let me just throw out two or three scenarios. Number one, recovery rooms after surgery. I wonder how many nurses could tell some stories on the nicest people that said the foulest, cruelest things after surgery. Oh, they could tell some stories. It's unfortunate. And some of you, as I say the next thing, you literally will attach a name to it. But have you ever seen the person that has reached an age where their mind has failed them, their conscience is no longer reliable to stop them from just saying what's on their mind, and it really is crude. Can I tell you something? Both of those scenarios, it was there all the time. We've just learned to cover it up. You say, well, Brother Jeff, there you go again. That's not describing me. I can kind of see some people in the recovery room, and unfortunately those, you know, their mind lets them down, and it's not trustworthy, and I can see, but that's not me. Listen, if you don't have vile, rotten, corrupt cursing bitter speech it's because you were reared in a culture that trained you not to do that but praise the lord you don't do that don't do that i'm telling you don't do that but it's in you the only reason you don't fit that is because you've been reared not to but the ability you left alone reared in another way of life this definitely fits all of us the words there in verse 14 have the idea of wanting the worst. These cursings and bitterness, literally wanting the worst for someone. I just not want it not, not good for you. Not just, oh, I'd like some bad things. I want the worst to happen. And you actually express it verbally. And that's in every single one of us. Mankind's character is corrupt. Mankind's conversation is corrupt. 
And then thirdly in this section, on God's verdict of man, his mankind's very conduct is condemned. Look at verse 15 to 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I realize it's tempting to look at this section of Scripture and think, Brother Jeff, I've watched the news, and man, this, this very well describes some of the places around the world, but that's not America. And really, it's not these United States, and it certainly isn't me. I've never shed anyone's blood, literally. Some of you could say that. I've never caused bloodshed on anyone. I've never brought harm to anyone. I'm just not that kind of a person. This just doesn't describe me. Okay, hang on. You say, this doesn't describe the good people in Anderson. This is South, this is South Carolina, Jeff. This is South Carolina. What is it? Our tea is sweet and our faith is strong and whatever, all that stuff. Yeah, we're good people. Think about why we don't fit these descriptions. I'll tell you why. We're scared of the consequences. Y'all help me out. I'm actually looking for a word. Starts with the letter L. What happens in every city of any size the moment people think maybe it's a hurricane's coming? They've told everybody, get out, hurricane's coming, it's going to be power outages. Most people leave, some people don't, and just police can't get to all sections, and we're not going to be able to get ready. You're on your own. Or protests turn to rioting, and all of a sudden the, the police will not go into whole sections, and sure enough, power outages come. What happens in every single city when someone has a camera and they got a high spot, what starts happening? Starts with the letter L, tell me. Looting. If it happened in Anderson, I'm telling you what would happen in Anderson, South Carolina, there would be looting galore. Here's my point. If people knew, mankind knew, here in good old Anderson, if people know they'll not get caught and they will literally never face the consequences, here's my question, how many thefts would occur, how many beatings, how many murders, and how many illicit sexual relations, whether consenting or rape. How many would happen? If they know, I'll never get caught, and I'll never have to pay the consequences. Epidemic. Epidemic. Anderson. It's in us. Verse 16 and 17 is basically saying, mankind left to himself would destroy everything in our path. There's a reason our police force is so full. I don't know, my son's down. I was going to ask him. I forgot to ask him. I don't know how many are in criminal justice in the United States. It's hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Uh, Do either one of you gentlemen know? I don't know the, the number of law enforcement. Hundreds of thousands. Why? So many. Because of this. Praise God. God made this thing called governmental authority to curb us and to put some fear into us. Why? Because apart from God, mankind knows no peace. There's no peace between nations. You're like, oh yeah, we're, we're at peace with him. No, we have an agreement that can be broken. There's no peace. There's no peace between, between races. Literally, two strangers. Literally will take a look at each other. And some will have hatred. Others will have a disdain. And many will have a dislike. Why? Because of the color of their skin. Don't even know them at all. There's no peace. As if they chose to be white. Just don't like you. As if they chose to be black or Hispanic or Asian. Like, I don't like you. Why? Because there's no peace. There's no peace between neighbors. There's no peace between management and labor. Management has forgot what it was like to be labor. And labor assumes if I was management, I could do it a whole lot better. Right? 
There's no peace between spouses, between parents and children. No peace. You know what's really sad, and I wish I didn't have to... I hope I'm wrong, but guys, to make this point, I really believe this. At this very second, right now, someone is in a hand-to-hand fight, fighting for their life while you're sitting here. They are. And some will escape. They'll be able to run, or help will come, or they'll inflict the death blow in self-defense. Some right now are in a battle and their cardio is going to let them down or the other one has a better weapon and they're going to lose it. I'm not talking about war. I'm talking about just random. Burglary went went wrong. It's going right now. Why? You're like, Jeff, man, come on. We've got to get out of this section. This is not fun. I know it's not fun. The last thought here on on the first point is in verse 18. It kind of tells us why. Our actions and our speech is so corrupt. The Bible says there is no fear of God. This is the 14th indictment that God says we're guilty of. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason our words and our actions are corrupt, there's no fear of God. Now here's, many of you men have been doing the workbook, right? Today we have two men's groups. I think tomorrow night there's another one. So we had an assignment where we actually were talking about the fear of God. I want to offer to you my effort at a definition of what is the fear of God. So you say, what is the fear of God? Here comes. Biblical fear of God means not only to acknowledge the theoretical presence of God. Oh yeah, I believe in God. No. That's not fear of God. By the way, the God of the Bible. Biblical fear of God means more than just to acknowledge the theoretical presence of God. It also means to be aware, to be aware of the immediate presence of God with you at every moment, and then you adjust your life accordingly. You don't know, yeah, God's out there and he's getting reports. No, that's not fear of God. Fear of God is the God of the Bible is not out there kind of seeing he's right here watching. Tony Evans on our video a couple weeks ago, he used the illustration. Here's how he worded it. Fear of God means you take God seriously. Fear of God, he says, I'm driving down the road, up on the high. I can't tell it like he does. I don't have time. But from the right on ramp, here comes a highway patrol. And he jumps in. And Tony says, as I was driving, I adjusted my driving because I took him very seriously. And he said, I just became very aware of how I'm driving and the speed with which I'm driving. And he follows this guy for two, three miles. And then he admits, I mean... Just being transparent. As soon as he goes off, Tony's like, then I'm back to my normal driving. But for the moment, I'm very aware of him. I'm looking at Ryan. Ryan, you keep looking up there. I wonder what would happen if we were aware of God watching us. You're like, oh yeah, God's over here. He's aware of what's going on. No, no, no. I mean, not just seeing and kind of getting report. Oh, he's watching right here you're like well that kind of be one that make me a little uncomfortable you say man that would probably affect the way I talk at lunch today oh it would you say man that would probably affect the way when the offering plates passed and, and what I spend my money on oh it would as God oh oh, oh. Yes. your viewing habits changes everything you know why we do the things we do we don't have any fear of God oh yeah occasionally I remember he's out there what if we lived as if he's right here 
It would change everything. Our very thought life. The way we listen to a sermon. I realize this isn't fun to hear, but let's quickly shut down this first point with this thought. A lot of people arrive at theological errors. I'm going to tell you why. Because they don't understand the doctrine that this passage is teaching. Here it comes. The total depravity of man. You're like, right, uh, we're mostly bad. We've got just a little spark of divinity in us that does good. And if fan properly, we'll become good people. No, there's nothing but blackness and deadness in us. That's the biblical view, total depravity. And if you missed that in the Bible, you've missed an important point. In your notes, would you write the following? A wrong view of the problem, total depravity, always leads to wrong solutions. Right, I, if I can just start doing good, that's a wrong solution because you don't understand the problem. Our character is corrupt, our conversation, our very conduct to the core, apart from God. Number two, mankind's silence. Did you see it? So we have the judge's verdict. We have mankind's silence. Verse 19. Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So we have to ask ourselves, who qualifies as being under the law? Is it the people that had a copy of the Bible? We talked about this a few weeks ago. So I want you to go back or look at the screen. Watch verse number 12 of chapter 2. Who qualifies as being under the law since the law is over everyone who has the law. Watch verse 12. For all who have sinned, chapter, verse 12 of chapter 2, for all who have sinned without the law. What about all those people who didn't have the Bible? What will happen to them? The Bible says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish. They'll perish without the law. God will take account. You didn't have the written law. You didn't have the Old Testament. I, I know you didn't, but you're still going to perish, but you'll perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, they had the written Old Testament. They'll be judged by the law, stricter. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And you hear that and you say, but that's not fair. They didn't know. Verse 14 says, for when Gentiles, that's the people who didn't have a copy of the Old Testament, who do not have the law by nature, when they by nature do what the law requires, they don't kill, they get sweaty palms when they're about to tell a lie. He says they are a law to themselves, even though they didn't have the Old Testament, even though they do not have the law. They show, those people show that the very work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So we ask ourselves, who qualifies, according to verse 19 of chapter 3, who qualifies as being under the law? Everybody. Every person who's ever lived you see, even those that didn't have the law, the Old Testament, right, they still had a conscience. They still knew the law of God was stamped on their being, in their DNA. God revealed that he, is, he exists and that he's a moral God and those things are wrong and they still did them and that's why their conscience bothered them and they'll be found guilty. And then these others had more clear representation of God's laws and rules and commands and they still sinned and they'll be judged stricter. But quickly at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. This is important, very important. Paul gives a glimpse of the day of judgment. So what would the day of judgment going to look like? Please get this. This may affect somebody here this morning. Eternity will tell. 
Eternity will tell if a person here, and, and we'll all know, but unfortunately, it'll be too late. Eternity will tell what the judgment day looks like, and what Paul's describing is, in essence, this whole group of people at the great white throne judgment will be declared guilty, and they're getting ready to receive their sentence of condemnation. But it's as though the Bible is like, now, do you have anything to say for yourself? What do you have to say? And the whole world there, the guilty, will have nothing to say. You say, what's judgment day going to be like? There will be, this earth will be gone, this current universe will be gone, the heavens as it exists where God is now, all of that is gone. There's only eternal souls and beings and, and, and we don't even have the bodies yet, that's coming and here's what's going to happen. All this group of people is going to be let out of hell where they've been. Two things are going to happen, watch this. They're going to see the righteousness of God for the first time because they don't see it immediately after death. They go, they wake up in hell and they're in torments and then they're going to see the righteousness of God and they're going to hear these books read about about their life and, and it, it, you have anything to say for yourself and they literally will have nothing to say. No lost person will stand and say, that's not fair. So if you're here today and you think, I'm going to just tell God, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. No, you won't. And no one will be able to say, I didn't know. There'll be one voice. Here it comes, one voice. He said, God, right, Jesus specifically, after all that, the books are read, the evidence is brought out. Here it comes. Guilty on that and that and that. Look at you. Watch. See how you turned left and right before you did that? You knew it was wrong. You see that? Glad I told. You see that? You sat and listened and listened. And you never put your faith in Christ. You rejected me. You spit in my face. Anything to say for yourself. Weeping and wailing, but no words. And the only voice will be Jesus saying, bind them hand and foot and cast them into the lake of fire. Depart from my presence. I never knew you. Your name is not in the book of life. And that's what judgment day will be like. And chances are very high at someone here today. Number three, and lastly, we have the laws designed we have the laws designed. God says he gave the law. It speaks to everyone who's under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. No one can say I didn't know. And the whole world will be held accountable to God. The whole world. Watch verse 20. Here's a biblical fact. I know my time is gone, but I'm going to read verse 20, that first line. I'm going to read it three times. You ready? I'm going to pump it into you. For by works of the law, the rules of God, the commands of God, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Again, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You say, Brother Jeff, some people... They have these good actions. What about that? The Bible says there's none good. Listen carefully. If, I were to, if we were to dig under this church, there are pipes. I don't know if it's those green ones. or I don't know if it's the old terracotta. I don't know if it's clay. Probably not. It's probably the white ones. This building's not that old. If we were to dig up a three-foot section of sewage pipe and I were to take Aquafina, Dasani, whatever you like, and I get two or three, and I say, I'm going to give you some water. You put that into the pipe on your mouth, and I'm going to pour this nice, clean water, right? You say, I don't want any. No, 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 this is clean water. Yeah, but the vessel it's being delivered through is nasty. I don't want it. You say, but people do good things, but the vessel is unclean. So it corrupts all that we think were our good works. 
on that day that I described a while ago, I'll promise you when the righteousness of God is seen, there will not be one Jew that's saying, but I'm righteous. And I promise you, no Gentile will say, but hey, Lord, what about my, my baptism? What about my church membership? I read the Bible those times. And what about the money I gave and those good deeds? No one's going to say it. Silence. Why? Because you don't get saved by keeping the law. You say, why does, why does the law not save anyone? Write these three reasons down at your last note today. Keeping the law cannot save a sinner. Why? Number one, because if, and that's the if, it's hypothetical. If we could clean up our future conversations so that we never say anything else wrong. If we could clean up our conduct, never do anything wrong, and always from now on do all the right things and say all the right things. Guess what? We still have this guilty character. Our character, the vessel, the pipe that we're delivering that through is, is, is already corrupt. Even if we could stop. Second thought is the same thing. If, I, if, if, if you never committed another sin from this day forward, you've already shattered the law. You've already shattered the law of God. You can't get to heaven by keeping the law. You've already shattered it. If you did perfectly from here on, your chance is gone. You know the main reason you can't get saved by keeping the law? Because the law was never designed for that. I almost brought, I didn't. I almost brought a golf club here today. Because I was going to invite you to kind of picture me using a golf club to play baseball, right? Come on, send it right on down here. And I know that's not how you would hold a golf club. This thing's kind of heavy on the end, so I'm holding it here. I know it'd really be more. Down. Anyway, I'm not that unathletic, but anyway. <clears throat> would you use a golf club to hit a home run? You're like, no, that's kind of stupid. It's not designed for that. Would you use a baseball bat? When we go to our men's retreat and try to play golf, you don't, like, no. You don't get to touch the ball after you tee it up till you get to the green, so you don't get to get out in the fairway like, oh. you don't get to do that. It's not designed for that. We've got another thing designed for that. You say, what is the purpose of the law? Here it comes. To get you lost. So that you can read Exodus chapter 20, and here's how you know the law has done its job. When you come to these conclusions, God, I've loved me way more than you. God, I've dishonored my, I've dishonored my father and my mother. God, I've stolen things, answers, a quarter, that kid's toy, time at the job. God, I've lied. Doesn't matter what kind, big ones, small ones, all of us have lied. God, that's me. I've lied. I'm here to tell you, if you try to go to heaven by keeping the law, every person who's ever tried, all have failed. None have ever gotten to heaven by keeping the law. What's the purpose of the law? Lord, I've coveted. I've wanted their house, their car, their spouse. Lord, I've wanted their body, their hair, their skin complexion. I have issues. They don't. I wish I had their personality, their bank account. Here's the point. You, I promise, you cannot go one day without breaking God's law in your heart. So here's the conclusion. For six weeks, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. You said, Jeff, is there any hope? There's an inkling of hope at the end of verse 20 because there's a certain word. Look at it. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You're saying, is it possible to be justified? Listen carefully. It is possible to be justified. You say, what does justification mean? I'm going to borrow from next week's message and I'll be done. Here it comes. To be justified in God's sight does not mean God makes you righteous. You say, 
What does it mean? Because we have all this evidence against us and we're obviously guilty. It doesn't mean God makes you righteous. Watch. It means God treats you as if you were righteous. And we're like, how can that happen? Just before we close our eyes, will you hear a sample of next week's message? Here it is. Listen carefully. The ability for guilty and condemned sinners to be treated as righteous by God is found only in the death of Jesus Christ, God's Son, on a cross using His shed blood to pay the penalty for your guilty sin. And through what He did on the cross, God has promised, if you will ask God to let what Jesus did count for me, then you will be treated as if you were righteous. You say, is it possible? Oh, it's possible. It's happened to me. Would you close your eyes? Would you close your eyes? Earlier in the message, I said, Paul nor myself's goal is to be mean or to try to sound tough. The invitation is going to be short this morning. Very short. And we'll get right to the point. Christians... Today, your invitation is simple. You should hear all of this and say, Lord, you know me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the difference you're making in my life. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to get right to it. You ready? Again, not to sound tough, not to be mean, but I'm going to word it closely to how the Bible just worded it. You ready? Verse 19. Here comes my question. Have you ever shut your mouth? For real. Have you ever just stopped your mouth? So what do you mean, Jeff? Has there ever been a time where you just stop listening to yourself about how good you are? Stop lying. That voice inside, that self-preservation where you keep telling yourself, God will let it go well with me because I'm not that bad. Have you ever just stopped it? stop have you ever just stopped long enough to realize God's not buying it and he knows you better than you know yourself and he's not going to lie for you have you ever just shut your mouth before God I want to tell you every person here will stand before God and admit their guilt you will either do it with your silence then or you do it in this life with confession but you will admit your guilt before God my invitation to you today is admit your guilt before God in confession this morning today is the day of salvation This may be the first time you've heard something like this. This may be the 100th time. Don't wait till it's too late. Today, will you do, while I'm talking, let let me help you. I can't save you, but here's what you do. You say, I don't want to stand silent and hear Jesus say, bind me hand and foot and cast me in the lake of fire. Depart, I never knew. You say, I don't want to hear that. I, I care about my soul, and I really believe this stuff's real do this right now, right now bring God into your focus and just talk to him stop defending yourself and have a different conversation 
Here it is. God, you're right about me. Say it right now, right now. Lord, you're right about me. I have surely put myself in front of you and I'm an idolater. Keep it going. Talk to him, not me. Talk to him. God, I have dishonored my father and my mother. Talk to him. Say, literally, talk to God right now. He can hear your heart. Say, God, I have lusted in my heart and I'm an adulterer at my heart. Tell him right now, God, I'm a blasphemer. I've taken your name in vain. God, I've stolen. And Lord, you know how many times I've lied. God, I've coveted. I have coveted. Tell him right now, God, I'm a lying, thieving, blaspheming, hating, adulterer by your standard. And then cry for mercy. Right now, bring God into your focus and say, God, based on what Jesus did on the cross, Will you please forgive me of my sin? Ask him, beg him, God, would you let what Jesus did on the cross count for me? You said you would. Lord, save me at this moment. I receive you as my Savior. I'm guilty, but I want to be forgiven through Christ. Father, I don't know what you do from week to week. I literally have no idea. Lord, I can't manipulate people and I don't have the power to save. Lord, I pray that your truth has been given. I pray that your truth has been received. And Holy Spirit, continue doing what only you can do. Lord, did you give someone faith right now? Did someone just, perhaps for the first time in their life, ask you to save them and receive forgiveness of sins? Lord, if that did happen, if that did happen, would you give them the courage to acknowledge it publicly by a raised hand in a moment so we could celebrate with them? Would you give them that courage to not be ashamed of eternal life?